Welcome back to the Vatican Briefing, National Catholic Reporter's podcast covering Pope Francis, the Vatican, and the big decisions facing the global Catholic Church. I'm Joshua McElwee, the Reporter's News Editor. And hello, I'm Christopher White, the Reporter's Vatican Correspondent. Later in this episode, Chris and I are going to take you inside the Vatican's office for the Synod of Bishops. We have an exclusive interview with Sister Nathalie Becar, one of the primary organizers of the 2023 and 2024 Synod, a two-part summit called by Pope Francis to discuss the very future of the Catholic Church. Bacar, who was one of the first women in history to ever vote at a Vatican Synod, spoke to us about how Francis is trying to create what she called a new style of leadership for the Church. She also discussed questions about women's leadership and how the Church includes and ministers with LGBTQ Catholics. It really is an engaging interview. I hope you'll stick around and join us with Sister Natalie Bacar. But Chris, before we get to that, there's a lot to talk about. We're speaking now on Thursday, February 8th. There's been a lot of stuff happening from the Vatican the past couple weeks. Maybe you want to lead it off here with a new document from the doctrinal office about how priests should make sure to follow the rubrics with the sacraments. Yeah, I think a lot of things happening here in Rome and a lot of documents coming out. And the latest from the Vatican's doctrinal office came out on Saturday. The document is dated February 3rd. And the document was really a, a warning, in a sense, to, to priests not to get creative when it comes to the sacraments particularly when it comes to, to baptism. The document was approved by the, the plenary uh, members of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. They had just been in Rome in January, and they had been discussing this for some time. And this, what this document basically does is affirm that priests can't get creative, particularly when baptizing people. The prefect of the Dicastery, Cardinal Fernandez, uh, gave examples of those that say, I, I baptize you in the name of the Creator, or I baptize you, or we baptize you. Uh, and he said, look, you can't do that. Uh, there's a lot of room for pastoral creativity in other aspects of life as priest. But when it comes to the sacraments, stick with the script. It's not just a script that's been, you know, just sort of hastily written. This has lots of theological depth over centuries that has quite a bit of weight. And the document doesn't sort of impose any penalties for priests who deviate from this, but it serves as a reminder that, look, there are really sad cases of priests that have realized that they were not baptized correctly, and they've had to go through the whole process of receiving all the sacraments again, since baptism is sort of the, you know, the, the, the first sacrament uh, that one receives and, and necessary for receiving the other sacraments. You know, some folks would say that the Vatican's doctrinal office over the last year have shown that priests can be more flexible, most notably in December when we got the document on blessings for uh, individuals who are in irregular marriages, gay couples. This is an area where the doctrine office is being very clear. The script is there, no deviation from it. Yeah, it's interesting, Chris. Something you and I spoke about privately was just how interesting it is that the doctrinal office now under the new prefect, Cardinal Victor Fernandez, who has been a, a friend and a theologian and a fellow Argentine like Pope Francis, how the office in the past six months has been a lot more active than we're used to. We've seen a number of kind of interesting documents on a number of fronts, this one dealing with sacraments being the most recent. Earlier last year, we had the document about making clear that trans persons can be baptized. We had the document outlining the possibility for priests around the world to offer blessings to same-sex couples or to those in what the Vatican considers irregular relationships. And we're seeing a very interesting dynamic here where this doctrinal office, which once was a bit more careful about what it would say, maybe would make a pronouncement once or twice a year, is now in a much more active mode. And as we talk about this sacraments issue, it's also interesting that the Pope is now more actively defending the previous document about same-sex blessings. 
we saw this week that the Pope gave an interview to an Italian faith magazine and basically had very something very strong to say about how people have been criticizing his move to sign off on blessings for same-sex couples and said it was kind of hypocritical that people would call on him to bless a good business or to bless people who are profiting from their business, but not gay couples themselves. It was quite interesting. It was very a, a different tone, I thought, from Francis, a bit more active, a bit more calling out other people's hypocrisy. Yeah, he was quite blunt. He said, that, look, this is hypocrisy. And I think one of the things he does very well is put things sometimes in very clear, blunt language. And this is certainly an example of that and doing it to defend a document that I think it's fair to say over the last two months has been the subject of much debate and uh, turmoil inside the Vatican and throughout the world. Yeah. And as we talk about the Pope speaking more bluntly, perhaps we can talk about the fact that the Pope is going to be meeting with a world leader now who is known for speaking extremely bluntly. This is the new president of Argentina, Javier Milei, who during the campaign cycle to become president had criticized Pope Francis, had called him expletive words that we probably shouldn't say on the podcast. And now he is coming to Rome next week to meet with Francis for the first time as president. Chris, you wrote a column about this for National Catholic Reporter that was out as we record this today. Do you want to talk a bit about this meeting and why it's so interesting? Yeah, I mean, actually, Josh, you know, I don't know what words we're not allowed to say on here. Maybe we should check with our <laughs> our superiors on that. Uh, but some of the language that President Malay has, has used to describe Pope Francis is quite colorful and quite explicit. Uh, you can read my column where I do list some of those examples. You know, he he's this 53-year-old bombastic personality. He was known as a bit of a TV personality. He's a right-wing libertarian populist. And part of his presidential campaign was really buttressed on sort of painting the Pope as this communist who he, he said on the campaign trail was a, a threat to the world. He said he was a force for evil. And he has now gone on to, be, of course, be elected president of Argentina, the Pope's homeland. And they are set to have a, a much-anticipated meeting at the Vatican this coming Monday. And I, I think, you know, what's been interesting is immediately after his election as president, Pope Francis reached out to him. And there's been sort of a, a detente. The two spoke by phone in that first week for about eight minutes, uh, where the Pope said, you know, you, you need courage and wisdom to lead the country. And uh, Malay is said to have replied that, you know, he has the courage and he's working on the wisdom. Argentina is facing some really difficult economic circumstances right now. There's over 200% inflation in the country, and he's going to be making some tough decisions financially, decisions that are going to have real impacts on the lives of a lot of people. And I think the Pope is quite worried about his homeland. I think he, you know, despite the fact that the two have, you know, historically been sort of painted as at odds with each other, I think he recognizes the fact that the two of them could and should perhaps come together for the sake of a country that is suffering a lot. Uh, so we'll see what their discourse is, is like when they meet in the Vatican. And of course, in the background of all of this is the fact that Pope Francis is 87 years old. He's been Pope for almost 11 years, and he's never returned to his homeland. I think many people believe that this is the year that the trip has to happen, if it's ever going to happen. And the Pope has finally expressed a real desire to possibly make this trip happen in the, in the coming months, perhaps later in the, in the fall. So we'll see how the meeting goes and if these two very wildly different personalities can kind of find themselves on the same page. Yeah, and you can definitely follow along at National Catholic Reporter on February 12th when the Pope meets with Javier Malay, the president of Argentina. We'll certainly have reporting. You can also look to see Chris's column today. Maybe we should pivot here, Chris, real quickly before we get to our interview with Sister Natalie Bacar to talk about why we wanted to speak with Sister Natalie. 
I mean, uh, listeners of this podcast will know that we first launched it to really discuss the discussions at Pope Francis's October 2023 Synod Assembly. She was really a key part of that synod, has been a key part of the synod process for several years now when she was appointed as a, the first woman undersecretary of the synod office. As this episode is coming out, the general council of the synod is actually meeting in Rome to discuss the possible agenda and plans for the next assembly. So it seemed like a really good time, especially I was in Rome a couple weeks ago with you, Chris, to meet with Sister Natalie and to kind of pick her brain a bit about the synod process, how it went in 2023, and, and what she's looking forward to in 2024. She received us in the in the Vatican's uh, Synod office, which I think is just such a, a hub of activity, or at least has been over the last few years. And it's from this very office that big decisions are being made about the future of the Synod, which is really so much of Pope Francis's vehicle for reform in the church. So many issues from women to how the church welcomes LGBTQ people to de- the task of decentralization. This office is tasked with seeing this through and kind of getting the church on board and providing sort of a, a listening forum and listening space for Catholics all around the world to feel as if their, their voices can be heard. So it's quite a heavy task uh, that she has on her shoulders. Yeah, and we kind of went into the interview with a very open mind, I think. We had a, a few items we wanted to bring up. One was the request from the 2023 Assembly that Pope Francis might release the reports of the two commissions that studied the possibility of women serving as deacons in the Catholic Church. Another was how the Pope's recent movement on allowing same-sex blessings or blessings of same-sex couples might affect the Synod's discussions in 2024. And obviously, we wanted to ask kind of a broader, big-picture questions about the Synod process, about the Pope's legacy, and what is his vision for the future of the Catholic Church. And I think what's great about this interview is it's wide-ranging, and, and a reminder that the Synod, while it having its first session in Rome in October and its next session in, next October, uh, is still very much in progress, uh, and many Catholics around the world are invested in this. Hopefully, Sister Natalie's words can serve as an update of what they're doing here in Rome to help that process along. Well, speaking of, this seems like a good place to take a break and hear from Sister Natalie herself. After the music, we'll be back with our exclusive interview with Sister Natalie Bacar from inside the Vatican's office for the Synod of Bishops. Sister Natalie, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vatican Briefing. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. We're speaking now about three months after the 2023 Synod Assembly and about seven months before the 2024 Assembly. We were wondering if first you could just update us briefly on the, what the work of the Synod Office has been like in this interim period. Where are you most focusing your efforts now? Well, just after the assembly in October, we had to follow up, I would say, and to discern and work on the guidelines for the local churches on um, how to prepare the next assembly. And so we have published at the beginning of December a kind of roadmap sent to all bishops' conferences to send back to the local churches the consultation, I would say, and the synodal process with, uh, as a point of reference, the synthesis report of the assembly. So now the local churches are working on that and discerning their own way also to take up this uh, synthesis report and to prepare the contribution. 
And so now with our office, we are also already focused on the next assembly to prepare it more concretely and also to set up uh, committees and commissions, I would say, to follow up the work that has to be done here at the universal level, especially also in collaboration with other dicasteries. And our next step will be mid-February. We have our Council of the Synod, that is an important body for, for us to uh, also design some uh, things about the next assembly. Sister Natalie, you mentioned that the guidelines came out in December, the, the sort of roadmap as you described it. And in that guidance, we found the idea of enhancing the concept of co-responsibility in the church. Can you explain a bit how you understand the concept of co-responsibility and what does that mean uh, concretely in terms of ministry in the church and women's leadership? And, and how do you see co-responsibility taking shape? Well, you know, when we speak about co-responsibility, we have to link it and to root it in our common baptism. So it's mainly our co-responsibility as baptized because the synodal church is a church in which all baptized are protagonists and are missionary disciples to uh, fulfill the mission of the church. And so it's ready to enhance this vision that not only uh, a few ones or just the bishops or the pope or the priest are the one responsible for the mission of the church, but it's all of us. Of course, with different kind of uh, vocation, position and, and way to serve. So that's why we speak also about a kind of differentiated co-responsibility. But the most important is to retrieve what we have in common all of us, and to find a way to empower lay people, especially, and we can say also women, young people, lay faithful, to really be aware of their responsibility uh, to carry on the mission of the church and also to learn all together how to work concretely together. Um, I, I can give a very concrete example I had when I was in France. At that time, I was director of campus ministry in a big university near Paris. And then I was the national director for university pastoral care campus ministry in France. And our key word to uh, serve the students, to proclaim the gospel to the students for our network of university chaplaincies was co-responsibility. So that means for us chaplains, it was really obvious that we can't be uh, and lead uh, a chaplaincy uh, without students' leaders. And so uh, each year we had a, a formation to really help the students call to be co-leaders with the chaplains to understand their uh, co-responsibility, not just as, a, you know, a, a leadership role, it's important, but as a mission received by the church, rooted in their baptism. And so it's this spirit how we foster it in all kinds of church organizations, in the parishes, in uh, dioceses, so for instance, in parishes, it means to really emphasize and put into practice the parish council as a way to exercise co-responsibility uh, with the pastor. 
our listeners and readers at National Catholic Reporter, one issue that was discussed at the Synod that was of their interest was the question of women's leadership, particularly the question of the possibility of women serving as deacons. We noticed that in the, the final document from the previous Synod, there was a request that the previous two studies by the commissions appointed by Pope Francis on the issue might be made available to the next Synod. Do you have any update on whether that would happen or if the Synod will be able to kind of look at those previous researches about that issue? Well, I don't have, uh, because it's still in, in discernment how to deal with this topic. And uh, we, we have noticed, and you know, that that was one of an in, a topic in the Synod, but among the biggest topics that is women leadership. And as the Vatican has already a commission on that, it's good that we see how to connect uh, things with the Synod. But then I would like to highlight that also in our guidelines and roadmap, and I think that's something very important for uh, the question of women leadership, we have also emphasized that at this time, what is also very important at all levels of the church, and especially in local churches, is to keep on, as I say, the synodal dynamic and to continue to put into practice many things uh, or many ways that are already possible to put into practice for becoming more and more a synodal church. And so that means calling more women in leadership in different church bodies and uh, in dioceses, in bishops' conferences, Catholic charities, in Catholic universities, that's part of the church. And we have already many women in leadership there. So it's also highlighting some practices that are already there and um, finding, maybe sharing also good practices and finding ways to move, to go forward, uh, to have more and more women in leadership. And I know also that's already, as you have seen, a, a big uh, desire from Pope Francis, who is appointed in the Vatican, more and more women in leadership. But it's not enough. It's uh, also, it has to be done uh, in local churches. And uh, it's interesting that we see, I think, this strong call for more women leadership. And it's, you have a, a chapter on that in the synthesis report. But for many things, you don't need to wait, <laughs> you know, the end of the synod. And almost every week or every day, I have feedback from uh, also what is happening already in local churches. And it's very interesting because some bishops now, you know, they appoint more women in their diocesan offices. So things continue to move forward and it's, it's our co-responsibility of all of us. I think it's very important. Everyone can do something in different ways and we have that's why for this uh, I would say second dimension of the synodal dynamic uh, we are all co-responsible <laughs> to help our Christian communities our Christian organization everywhere including Catholic media to go forward. Thinking back on that very busy month in October, you know, one of the conversations uh, that came up uh, time and time again when we talked with various Synod members was the, the question of how the church could better include or minister to LGBTQ persons. Since the Synod has ended, we've heard the Pope himself <laughs> speak very strongly about this, saying that, you know, blessings could be offered to all the faithful in the church, including those in irregular situations. Since the Pope has spoken on this issue, how do you suspect that will affect the discussions between now and the next Synodal Assembly and then the Synod Assembly, do you think it will, in a sense, increase the discussion on this issue? Or has the Pope already issued the final word on that? How do you expect that to alter the dynamics? 
Well, you know, I, I don't know exactly, but what I see, and that is also interesting, as you mentioned, there were discussions on that during the Synod, and we know uh, that because of very different cultural background, experience, you know, the way to look at this question is not exactly the same if you are in the US or if you are in an African country or an Asian country in which it's still criminalized. That's the fact. So we see with the reception of the publication of uh, fiducial supplicants that you have many different ways to look at this issue. And I, I think that is to highlight that, you know, it's difficult to have uh, one way <laughs> to look at it and a consensus on this and because it, it's uh, also uh, and that's what we have seen during the synod what we see now <laughs> and so what how we can move forward we see that uh, even recently the Pope with what after the publication of the release of African continental body with Cardinal Abongo you know explaining that in the context can't uh, really embrace directly this proposal like this. And the Pope has also understood that. So it's uh, what we see is it's the need to continue the dialogue and to, to face, you know, a situation and to accompany the also very pastoral level, a situation uh, with all kinds of people <laughs> and according to also to, to, to the context. But it, it's true that um, the Synod has really emphasized that everybody in the church, whereas your gender, your uh, situation, you know, is welcome and, and has to be part to be heard so that's really the way forward and then how you do that in very practical ways what we see with the synodality you know is and I really think for me that was the main point of our experience especially through the assembly but through all the synodal process to put it in, in a nutshell it's how to live university in diversity and I think that's the main point that we are still learning it touched many different topics and I think what is happening now is very interesting because we are maybe less afraid of uh, this diversity. That is also a path for unity if you really continue to dialogue. And the fact that, uh, you know, bishops and different people speak up and say, well, their voice um, is a good thing and, and is a sign of synodality. One of the things we looked back at the synthesis document and recognized was how it mentioned the possibility of expanding the responsibility of lectors, including in certain circumstances possibly preaching. Chris noticed that this weekend on Sunday, you preached at a Methodist church in Rome. How did this come about? Is, is this an example of kind of taking that responsibility for lectors more or expanding that a bit more? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because among all the topics of the Synod, one was really there was no debate. And there was a strong consensus about ecumenism and really the need to continue to foster our ecumenical relationships and to work for Christian unity. And it's, there was really a strong consensus about that. And some are speaking about a kind of uh, new keros uh, that mean important time for ecumenism. We had the together ecumenical prayer vigil at the beginning of the Synod. That was a very important historical moment with Pope Francis and other church leaders and Christians 
from all kinds of denominations praying together on St. Peter's Square. So the pastor of this Methodist church with some people of her congregation and young people, they took part to the Together Prayer Vigil. And uh, it's through, you know, encounters and relationships that I was uh, invited to <laughs> uh, during this week of prayer for unity. To, to preach at this Methodist church and uh, I was touched, you know. I think it's, it's really to live what we call the exchange of gifts and in different ways. And I think it's a call for all of us, uh, as I say also at all levels, to find ways to foster ecumenical relationship because we all face and we have to be together to face the biggest challenge of the world. And there is a strong awareness about that, you know, in a world of crisis, as we know, with many wars, violence, polarization, uh, the problem of climate change, of migration. We need to be together to face those challenges. And ecumenism goes hand in hand with synodality. And Pope Francis often repeats, there is no synodality without ecumenism and no ecumenism without synodality. That's why with our office, from the beginning of the synod, we have been very much um, committed to uh, take up the ecumenical dimension of the synod. And I, I am more involved in that. And that's how also things happen. But I think and I hope it, that kind of experience can happen, happen uh, you know, in many, in many places. Yeah, we're speaking now during the week of prayer for Christian unity, and uh, you just mentioned the, the the prayer vigil on the eve of the synod, and that powerful image of you know some twenty different leaders right in front of the facade of St. Peter's Basilica. Are there hopes for a repeat of that in October, or other ecumenical initiatives at the next session of the synod? Well, it's uh, in discernment, you know, and it, it, it's true. And even the Synod has, uh, has asked to have more fraternal delegates for the next assembly, because during the last assembly, we had 12 fraternal delegates. So that means uh, church leaders from other Christian communities, Orthodox, Protestant, all kind. And so we work a lot also for that. It's uh, uh, the duty and the, the mission of the Dicastery for Christian Unity. And what is interesting is also to see how what we experience in the Catholic Church with this synod is also a kind of call and is uh, taken up by other Christian denominations. And we learn from each other because uh, we see the Orthodox have already many different ways to envision and to live synodality. The Protestant churches also. So there have been already some initiative to share about that and also highlight that we must continue to, to do that. So I think it's a very interesting moment. And uh, for instance, this week, you, as you may know, you have different uh, ecumenical uh, dialogue. Uh, we are meeting in Rome and tomorrow I will meet the one between the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church in which you have pairs of bishops, uh, Anglican and Catholic, also to speak with them about how synodality is really vital for the church of today and tomorrow. And it's really the call of God for the church in the third millennium. And I think on many things, especially for instance, we have highlighted that to implement uh, synodality and to continue this synodal process and to become more and more a synodal church, it's a path of conversion. It's about a new style of leadership, a new way to exercise the authority. I think, and so there is a strong need for formation. 
And maybe that's a field in which we can also work more together with uh, leaders of other churches. You know, we're conscious of your time and that you're a very busy schedule, but as we kind of close this interview, we thought we might ask kind of a big picture question. We've been doing a lot of thinking ourselves and also at National Catholic Reporter about Pope Francis's legacy now that he's uh, in his 10th year coming into the 11th year of his papacy. As someone tasked with helping him implement one of his big initiatives on synodality, how do you see the impact of his papacy? How will synodality kind of resound in years to come and his focus on this style of leadership for the church? Well, you know, I think maybe a big thing that we inherit from this uh, pontificate and what Pope Francis has done is um, to advance, I would say, the reception of the Second Vatican Council. And I often quote a theologian from Australia who was expert at the Synod, Armand Rush, and he says, Synodality is the Second Vatican Council in a nutshell. And I really see that, that what we are doing is ready to continue to implement uh, the Second Vatican Council. And Pope Francis was the first Pope, you know, who didn't really took part directly to the Council. Uh, but it's interesting to see how is it completely shaped by the Council vision and help for that. And I think his legacy is, of course, about synodality, but also I, I will highlight, and I think it's very, very important, because sometimes we tend to look at synodality just as a way to be church uh, ad intra, but it's really about, it goes hand in hand with Laudato Si, the way uh, to, uh, to face, we can say, the ecological conversion. Uh, it goes hand in hand with Fratelli Tutti, about fraternity and social friendship. And so it's about how to build a world that could be a common home for everybody. So the legacy at the end for me of Pope Francis, and that's also his style from the beginning, is ready to put at the center relationships, encounters, dialogue, mutual listening, and helping our societies of today really to uh, lift, to have a way to find ways so that people can live together in their diversity. And that's the main challenge for us. Sister Natalie, thank you so much for joining us on the Vatican Briefing. It's been really wonderful speaking with you today. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Natalie. It was really great this week to be joined by Sister Natalie Bekar. We're so grateful for her time to join us today. Chris, I was really struck by her response actually to our last question about the wider arc of Pope Francis's legacy, that he and the Synod Office really feel tasked with continuing to implement the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. It's striking to me that the council ended in 1965, and here we are in 2024, still debating and implementing many of its decisions made 60 years ago, and even still talking about many of the same issues, such as women's leadership in the church, better ministry of the church on the margins, how the church ministers to people who feel on the periphery, such as LGBTQ persons or those who are migrants or those who don't feel included in the church's ministry. It's striking to me that we are still having these conversations, that Francis has kind of seen the Synod of Bishops as a way of continuing 
continuing these conversations, continuing to implement these decisions, and that even you know, 60 years on, we're still at this. We're still doing it. That's right, Josh. Particularly when you think of the issue of women's leadership, which of course for so, so many people brings up passionate feelings, uh, feelings of frustration that they don't see the church making enough progress. Others say, you know, that want to tap the brakes. On that front, you know, Sister Natalie in so many ways has come to embody what the Synod of the Bishops is all about. I mean, she's given over a hundred interviews, probably hundreds of interviews. She's crisscrossed the globe speaking about the Synod. Uh, and she has really, I think, lifted the whole profile of the Synod office. More recently, we were talking with her, she's quite humble about this, but she was named uh, as part of Forbes' most influential women 50 over 50 list. She is letting the world know about the discussions taking place in the Catholic Church and is a great advocate for them. Everyone, I think, just has to kind of stand in awe of what she's accomplished in, in this period of time. Yeah, and for, for all of history, she will be one of the women among the first group to ever vote at a synod at the Vatican. And I was also struck by her answer when we asked about women's leadership in the church. She was very clear that dioceses, different Catholic institutions, don't have to wait for the synod to end, that they are empowered now to make decisions, to appoint women to leadership roles, and to kind of move forward as they can while the synod is having its discussions. Well, this seems like a good place to wrap up today's episode. Thank you again for joining us on the Vatican Briefing. We're recording on a regular schedule now. You can look forward to episodes in your feeds about every other week. In the meantime, you can find our show notes and all of our work at National Catholic Reporter at ncronline.org. Please, if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to click subscribe so you're notified every time we have a new episode. Until next time, you've been briefed. Vatican Briefing is a production of National Catholic Reporter. John Grasso is your executive producer. Joshua McAlee and Christopher White are your producers and hosts. The editing was done by Angie Von Slaughter in conjunction with David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Today's music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. This podcast and NCR's future media initiative are made possible in part by the generosity of Bill and Jean Buchanan.